Good morning. A few people missing today. That's good, though. I'm glad that the, a lot of our women got to get away this weekend. Unfortunately, my bride did not, and so I'm going to have to send her on her own retreat, I think. Um, this week, um, we are back in the book of Galatians. We started last week with the, just the first few verses, um, first five to be exact, the salutation of Paul. And um, that was pretty heavy. I don't know about you guys, that's pretty, kind of a heavy passage. Well, unfortunately, I've been trying to figure out somehow uh, this week to preach verse 6 through 10 in a little more uplifting, celebratory way, and there's really just no way to do it. I really worked hard. I felt like we were in a heavy passage last week. It'd be great if we could come up for air. Uh, but Paul doesn't seem to want us to do that yet. So um, we're going to need to pray that um, we have ears to hear what was just sung. Uh, we have ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, because Paul wants to communicate a very, very important message to us today. And... Um, I don't know how to do that in a real happy, uplifting way, so uh, we're just going to dive in, if that's all right with you. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the passage today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you have not left us to ourselves. You have not left us to the bondage of our sin, but you came, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, took our penalty, the wrath of God that was due us on yourself and then after three days rose again to give us life, freedom. God, we pray as we study this book that you would free us you would continue to untangle our lives from the ramifications and consequences of our sin to free us to worship you the way you created us to. We ask, God, that you would teach us that although we approach this text soberly, God, we pray you would move, that your spirit would be alive. And the word would do what it is promised to do, and that is to change us from the inside out. Please do what only you can do, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Galatians 1, 6 through 10. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. For a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Charles Jenkins had been a good soldier for nine years. He was awarded a medal for good conduct and he was promoted to sergeant. But on January the 5th, 1965, after 10 days of planning and lots of drinking, he tied a white t-shirt to his rifle and defected to North Korea. He disappeared into that dark country for nearly 40 years until 2004. When he was able to leave North Korea to seek medical treatment in Japan. And in September he turned himself into the U.S. military authorities. And at his court martial the frail, tearful, 64 year old soldier pleaded guilty to desertion. Told the judge, ma'am, I am in fact guilty as charged. Why did he walk away? Why did he walk away from his unit and his country? He said he fled because he was afraid. He'd been transferred to dangerous daytime patrols in the demilitarized zone, and he was fearful of dying. Jenkins wept as he described his depression, fears of death, and the heavy drinking that led to this desertion. He thought he'd be returned home, you see. He thought if he could just leave, then they would send him home. But instead, he suffered under harsh conditions all the rest of his life. He was quoted as saying, I knew 100% of what I was doing, but I had no idea of the consequences. It took 40 years for those consequences of Jenkins' desertion to really filter into his life and come to light. Paul writes the letter to the Galatians knowing exactly what the consequences of their desertion will be. And he is not about to wait around and see that come to fruition. So he continues this letter. And what he's doing here is he's taking a big, huge spotlight. And he is turning it on. And shining it directly to, to show the Galatians exactly what's going on. I know about you, but if you're in pitch black dark, darkness and somebody shines a big bright spotlight in your face it's shocking it startles you this passage Paul writes kind of comes off with the subtlety of a train wreck it's shocking it's loud it's scary but necessary so what Paul just the amazement that Paul would move from verse 5 where he's singing the praises of God in doxology to verse 6 
and his ultimate rebuke shocks us. But let me just make something really clear. He is not doing this like some blogger sitting in an obscure coffee shop, tearing his adversaries apart point by point by point with more veracity as the number of lattes increase. That's not what he's doing here. It's not at all what he's doing here. He is taking this group of people, his beloved, those that he loves dearly, and he is reminding them of the grace and the responsibility they have to guard the gospel and to cling to it. And so, before we pronounce him heartless and unbelievably uncompassionate, let's think of it that way as we look at verse 6 and we get into this passage. Verse 6 says, I'm ashamed, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, the word amazing uh, in our English vernacular can be used in a lot of different ways, can it? Because amazing can express what? Awe? Amazing. Wow. Um, wonder can express wonder. That's not the way Paul is using the word here. His amazement is is pejorative and it is an astonishment that Paul, that Paul cannot believe what's going on. He's speaking to them as a father would speak to a child who he had labored in teaching the truth only to see him quickly disobey under the influence of so-called friends. You see, Paul's response is, how could you have done this? Or better yet, what were you thinking? You've probably been on either side of that emotion. I know I've been on both sides. My dad has said that to me. I have said that to my sons. It's just part of being a father, I think. But Paul is astonished. He, it wasn't because they were deserting him. Look into this passage with me. They weren't deserting him. They were deserting the one who had called them by his grace, by the grace of Christ. They were deserting God himself. Paul can't make sense of how someone could be so fickle that they would betray the one who had called them out of bondage to idols and to sin, had called them out of that into a salvation and a new life in Christ. He could not believe such a profound treason, such a profound desertion. Do they really understand the consequences of such an act? Let me ask you this question. Do you think we do? Do you think you and I daily 
understand the consequences of deserting the one who has saved us. I think probably not. And I think that because otherwise, why would we be so quick to desert Christ under our own fear and the pressure of some other thing in our life, some circumstance, some stress, some anxiety, some worry? Why would we quickly desert them to some other functional Savior? One that is not really a Savior. One that functional Saviors are like things that we, when we get so pressed that we run to, that we escape the press of life the little things that we indulge ourselves in just to allow ourselves some relief. You fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. It might be as simple as turning the TV on and drowning out everybody else in the, in the house. Dads, it may be walking away from the responsibilities of home to some hobby because the pressure's too much. You see, desertion is a serious thing. And Paul doesn't want us to miss it. He's amazed and he's astonished that the Galatians would do such a thing. But he reserves his heaviest fire for those that would seduce the Galatians away from that gospel. In verse 7, he says, There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now the word distort, the word distort there, um, or pervert, depending upon the translation you have, is something we, we need to really think well about. Because it's not that they have most of the gospel, but they're just off a tick, and that's okay. Because that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that they have reversed the gospel. They have taken it and turned it on its head. They have perverted it in the, most, the worst way. I mean, does it sound that big of a deal to you? When these false teachers would say something to the effect of, yeah, we believe in Jesus' work on the cross, but we also believe in the circumcision and the Mosaic law and keeping those. Does that sound like a big deal to you? It should because Paul pronounces it a false gospel, not a gospel at all. You see, they wanted to add something of their own to Christ's completed work. So when somebody knocks on your door and says, of course we believe in Jesus, but we also believe they took the gospel of grace through faith and they turned it back into a gospel of works through obedience. They turned the gospel of grace on its head. 
Jesus wasn't enough for them. He was a great help, but he failed to get the job done. They needed to add some other things to it. So here's the point that I want us to understand, that if the gospel is able to be distorted, if there could be a false gospel, there must be a particular gospel. There must be a gospel that you can define that is steadfast, that does not change. And so what is that gospel? What is the gospel that Paul is fighting so hard to defend? (laughs) He doesn't tell us here. I think at this point, Paul assumes that the Galatians are quite familiar with the gospel. Why? Because he taught it to them. He's the one who preached it to them. You see, in verse 8, he says, But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you. So what was it? What did Paul preach to the Galatians? What was the gospel that he was so adamantly fighting for? Well, if you go to Acts 13, 16 through 41, and this is your homework. Nobody likes homework, but this is it for for the week. Devotions every day, Acts 13 through 41. Read it till you get it, okay? Paul's sermon. Paul's sermon is amazing. This is the sermon he gave at Poseidon Antioch in southern Galatia. This is the sermon where he lays out the gospel and in my opinion is one of the greatest sermons in the entire Bible. You want to learn the gospel? Meditate on this. Paul delivers it with force and clarity. The sermon recites God's mighty act of rescue how he brought redemption to man through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the benefits of which are the forgiveness of sin, a right standing with God, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, all through, all coming to you by grace through faith. Just a couple snippets to wet your whistle for this week. Um, let's go. Therefore, let it be known to you, this is verse 38 and 39, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Paul has already preached it to the Galatians. You cannot be freed through the law. You must be freed through what Christ has done for you. He's astonished that they've left this. Here's one other one at the very end of that passage. Now when the meeting of the synagogue, at the synagogue of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Not to go back to the law, 
but to continue in the grace of God that had been given to them. These are the Galatians that quickly deserted the gospel. This is the gospel that Paul fought against his adversaries so diligently for. And why? He says it at the end of verse 6 and verse 7 where he says, you are deserting uh, for another gospel which is not really another gospel. So I'm, I'm kind of a fan of, of easy math because I didn't, like the last math class I had was the first class I ever had in college and I quit after that. Got my credit, moved on. Um, just not there. Just not the mathematician. Larry's the mathematician if you need, need some help, not me. Here's my gospel equation. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Can you say that with me? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is Jesus, his finished work on the cross, and nothing else that sets you free from your sin and the wrath of God. His atoning sacrifice is all that you need. If anyone lies to you and adds a name of a prophet to that or some other higher teaching or some whatever, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Somebody knocks on your door and says, yes, we believe in Jesus, but the rest of what they say equals nothing. And Paul is hammering that at the church. There is nothing else. You cannot put anything on top of the gospel. You cannot add anything, subtract anything. Here is the reality. The gospel is not something to be authenticated by man. We heard this last week. This is not to be authenticated by man. This message authenticates man. The message of the gospel authenticates the messenger. So what are the implications today as we think about this passage to getting the gospel wrong? The first one comes in verse 7 where he says, really is not another gospel, only there are some who are disturbing you. The first implication of getting the gospel wrong is that it disturbs and troubles the church. Author John Stott writes, you cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. The church's greatest troublemakers are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, or persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. So, if that is true, how is your knowledge of the gospel 
today? Should I assume that you know the gospel? Should I assume that because it's taught every week in life change, that every small group leader is trained to make this the central theme of every accountability session and every Bible study that you do and every fellowship that you have as a small group? Should I assume? Should I assume that because it's preached from this pulpit week in and week out and week in and week out, that you understand and can apply the gospel to your life and to the others in this body? Have you ever considered that you're, that you have responsibility as a part of this body to protect its health by the way you handle the gospel and the way that you protect it from false teaching. That's not just the elder's job. That's all of us together. Paul says that even if we preach a different gospel, myself, other elders, if we preach a different gospel, My fear is that we do not do this well. Stott goes on to say, the only way to be a good churchman is to be a good gospel man. Let's bring that into the vernacular of North Wake. So what does it mean really to be a mature and ministering worshiper of God? Well, if it means anything, it means that the gospel is continually getting bigger and bigger and bigger in your life. And the applications of that gospel in your life are becoming endless. And there are all these little crevices and areas of your life that the gospel is being applied and transformed and turned. And you're clinging to it with all that you have and you're proclaiming it to those in the body that they may be saved. And you're proclaiming it to those in the community that they may be saved. So this week I have been confronted with the fact that I'm a deserter of Christ and that I am a distorter of the gospel. So what am I to do? What am I to do? I am to repent and turn. I'm to repent and turn at every stage that God shows me that I am deserting Christ or that I am distorting his gospel. And I am to meditate on that gospel day in and day out in order that I might understand it in a deeper way and apply it to my life and to others. So the best way to worship Christ and to serve his bride is to believe and to preach the gospel to myself and to others. That is it. Outside of that, we have nothing. The second implication of getting the gospel wrong comes from verses 8 and 9. And we do not want to go here. 
This is one of those things where we quickly want to turn the page and get to, get to chapter 3, get moving on so that we can get some of the glorious comfort of grace. But Paul says here that if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to what has been preached, what has been received, and he says they are to be accursed, anathema. This word's hard for us in the American context because everything in our culture screams at us to think about the here and the now and not eternity. The materialism that floods in through our TV and through our neighborhoods, the other things that just crush us, it's all about now, what you can get now, what you can grab now. Your best life now. And so the eternal significance of what Paul is sentencing these false teachers with escapes us often. The word has at its core an eternal doom. It is the curse of God without any hope of redemption. Eternal punishment. Our flesh flesh wants to dismiss this kind of thing. It's something we're just not comfortable with. Somehow, we want to justify this statement as being inconsistent with the Spirit of Christ, with the love of God. It's too harsh. Where is the grace in this, Paul? Where is it? And that is just the point. It's just the point. This is the terror of rejecting the gospel of Christ. There is no grace. If you distort this message, you add to it, you subtract from it, then you do not believe and therefore you are cut off from Christ. Anathema. There's no other way around it. There's no way for me to give this to you in a joy-filled, funny way with a joke. It's condemnation. And it's crushing. And Paul uses this throughout his letters, not just to these false teachers, but he applies it to others as well. And let's, so let's read 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Same word, same sentence, Although in our passage, Paul is pronouncing the false teachers accursed, he uses these same words to a larger group of people. All of those who would not obey the gospel and would not love the Lord. I don't know about you, but this has been really hard for me this week. It's hard for me to swallow that. 
And I came across this quote that I want to read to you from Pastor John Piper. The Bible does not reveal to us the eternal curse of God that we may yawn and turn the page. The wrath of God is revealed to shake the unbelievers out of their stupor and to take the swagger out of the Christian's walk and the cocky twang out of his voice. Let me read to you that again, particularly the end. The Bible does not reveal to us the eternal curse of God that we may yawn and turn the page. The wrath of God is revealed to shake the unbelievers out of their stupor and to take the swagger out of the Christian's walk and the cocky twang out of his voice. You are a deserter. You are a distorter. And you have been saved by grace. We are all under the anathema of God unless we believe in Christ's atoning work for us. Your neighbor, your family member, your friend. Galatians 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men? Obviously not, Paul. Obviously not. Paul was not winning many friends by sentencing them to eternal damnation. It's really not the way to win friends and influence people, is it? Or is it? Is it love to let your friends suffer the wrath of God because you have rounded the corners off the gospel to make it more palatable? The gospel is divisive. It has sharp corners. It divides all humanity into two groups. But it is great news. The greatest of news. That although we are deserters and distorters, there is hope. There is grace. Paul says, in my striving to please men, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul's priority is to glorify God above all things. In the first 10 verses of this book, Paul has traced the major themes of his letter to the Galatians, has asserted his apostolic authority, affirmed the person and work of Jesus Christ and proclaimed his astonishment and rebuke for the Galatians' desertion and his adversary's perversion of the gospel. So the question today, what hat do you wear? 
Are you a man pleaser? Do you desert Christ or distort the gospel because you want to please man? Do you desert Christ and run to other things to save you? Or are you a bondservant? One who's been set free to a life of servitude. Which is it? The good news today is that you do not have to remain a deserter. You do not have to remain a distorter of the gospel. You do not have to remain a man pleaser. You see, because all of these are the wages of sin and with them, they bring death. But Romans 6.23 tells us that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. My favorite Martin, Martin Luther quote is that he used to tell his congregation that he preached justification by faith every week because every week you forget. You and I need Paul's reminder not to forget. Not to forget the great and glorious gospel. Not to forget that by grace you have been saved. Not by works that any of us should boast. It's the free gift of God and all you have to do is believe. That's it. Nothing else. Nothing added to. Just Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this day that your work on the cross is sufficient for all of our needs. That in your promises you have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Protect us from ourselves, Jesus. Protect us from our flesh that we might run to other things. That we might desert you or distort your good news. Jesus, we love you. We repent. We repent and we turn and we confess to you that every single day at some level we desert you and distort your gospel and are man pleasers and not fears of God. Would you change us? Would you by your miraculous work of the Spirit through your gospel change us this day? Humble us. Humble us so that you may lift us up in due time. We pray this in Jesus' name.